1: Mary Inman is standing by in London to report our lead story: Big Pharma, Big Money, Big Troubles. Healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel has a Monitor Monday Rack report. Former CMS official Matthew Albright reports on current healthcare legislation. Healthcare attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. Senior healthcare compliance expert Sean Weiss has a Monitor Monday audit report. And making his Monday rounds this morning here on Monitor Monday is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. <laughs>
0: Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1RCM. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Good morning, all.
2: What a week it was. I want to start with some coronavirus information. First, let me say that this is a time for science and not politics. We all need to realize that there are people's lives at stake and that we, while we learn new things about cancer and heart disease every year, we are learning new things about coronavirus nearly every hour. We don't know the true mortality rate, we don't know the transmission characteristics, and we still have no definitive treatment. But it does appear that this virus spreads much easier than influenza and is much more dangerous for the elderly and patients with chronic illness. So we should not minimize the potential danger this poses to millions of people in this country. I would urge everyone to get their information from reliable sources, like the Centers for Disease Control web pages. If you read something on social media, trust it as much as you trust a copy and pasted progress note in the hospital. Always go to the source material. And no, elderberry does not keep you safe from infection. Now onto the coronavirus regulatory front. On Friday, CMS released two documents, a coverage and payment document and a frequently asked questions, which you can find on the Panelist Resources tab. While some details are about what CMS will not do, such as covering tests in asymptomatic patients who are believed to be carriers, they did indicate that if an inpatient needs to remain in the hospital but is otherwise stable to be discharged, the days will be considered covered and eligible for outlier payment, as are days waiting for a nursing home bed if one is not available. They also noted that all applicable deductibles and coinsurances remain in effect and will be and will not be waived, but they did indicate that Medicare Advantage plans may, at their discretion, be co payments. Patients with chronic illnesses have a higher mortality rate, so they are allowing medications covered under Part B, such as immunosuppressants for organ transplant recipients, to be dispensed in greater quantities than normal. Strangely, CMS also noted that if and when a vaccine is available, it will be covered under Part D. This is different than the influenza vaccine, which is covered under Part D. Now, this is significant because many doctors cannot give Part D vaccines because they have no means of billing Part D. So it will be left to pharmacies to give this vaccine when that time comes. In other news, I want to thank a West Coast listener who alerted Rack Monitor that CMS finally got tired of waiting for a new BFCC QIO contract to be awarded, and they used a provision in their policies that allowed them to ask another contractor to start picking up the slack. In a moment of honesty, CMS has called this contractor the Indefinite Delivery, Indefinite Quantity Contract, and it was awarded to Avar Consulting. This company has already started requesting medical... It's for high weighted DRG audits, which the DFCCQIO QIO normally does. There is no word yet on whether they will start auditing short stays. We'll keep up to date. That's all for now.
1: Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Doctor Hirsch. That was the vice president of R one R C M Ronald Hirsch M D. Doctor Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. now is the time for the Monitor Monday RAC Report with Nicole Emanuel. And good morning, Nicole.
3: Good morning, and hello, and happy RAC Monitor Monday. In today's RAC audit update, we'll discuss a case that just came out March 4, 2020, just five days ago. The question in this case is, can the government decline to pursue a TAM suit, then based on a later RAC audit of the same behavior that was declined review by the government, Reap the reward from the RAC's determination of overpayment? Can the government piggyback on the RAC? Can a whistleblower who brings a KETAM action against a healthcare provider receive a portion of proceeds recovered by a RAC auditor because of the whistleblower's actions? Here, the relator, Girardolia, filed her KETAM suit in June 2012. The government declined to intervene and did not suppress the RAC's claim review of the same conduct and the same claims. There was no work stop order or litigation hold to the RAC until 2017. So from 2012 to 2017, the RAC was requesting documents from the provider. The court determined that the RAC's audit's pursuit of recovery equaled a pursuit of a claim that the government had already declined to intervene. Now we all know that the rack recovered portion is always going to be in dispute. A mere allegation by a rack of monies owed does not equal monies actually being owed. The provider was appealing this decision and wants to retain the money during the appeal process. The rack wants its contingency fee. The government wants its portion. And now we have the whistleblower claiming ownership as well. The government argues that the RAC auditor, in this case HDI, made its own decision to audit Renown, which was the provider. The court found that the RACs are to take precautions to ensure that they are not reviewing claims that are either suppressed or excluded. In part, this is to prevent overlap between RACs, CMS, OGC, DOJ, OIG, and all the other law enforcement fraud investigators. The government argued that even if the DOJ was aware of the KETAM suit, no statute imposes a duty on them to stop or interfere with the RAC's statutorily mandated work. The court disagreed. It's clear from the record that CMS directed the RAC's actions, and that is the key. In order to prevent overlap, the RAC was required to review the RAC data warehouse to determine whether it could review specific claims and attempt to recover overpayment. However, a review of the RAC data warehouse is only as good as the data input to the data warehouse. If the RACs, CMS, OGC, DOJ, OIG, and other law enforcement fraud investigators don't interrupt or don't update the data warehouse based on claims they are reviewing and for which they are attempting to recover overpayment, The RACs will presumably be interfering with other fraud reviews. The government may pursue one remedy or the other, not both. The court basically said that the government, in essence, was double dipping. It would be inconsistent with the plain meaning of the broad language of the False Claims Act to allow the government to obtain recovery from the RAC or the MAC processes that would have been recoverable in the key team action and then exclude the relator from those proceeds they would have to have found out their claims had already been recovered by a Iraq or a Mac in this case guys we're gonna have to keep looking to see how the case law comes on after this case thanks and back to you Chuck
1: Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was Healthcare Attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner in the Potomac Law Group. And coming up at about 10 minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from David Glazer, Sean Weiss, Matthew Albright, and Mary Inman, who is standing by in London to report our lead story. This is Monday, it's March 9th, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Getting observation
0: billing right has always been important, especially for correct cost reporting, for ensuring that reimbursement matches true costs, and that future rate setting is based on actual historic costs. But now it is more important than ever, because auditors are starting to audit for excess observation hours. Though it was previously felt to not be worth their time, auditors have caught on to the fact that many healthcare professionals are not aware they may be billing observation incorrectly. To avoid denials, learn how to bill observation services correctly. A webcast featuring Dr. Ronald Hirsch is now available on demand. Access the on demand version of this important webcast at the Rack Monitor
1: Bookstore. Here now with the Modern Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. And David, as we say every Monday, what could possibly be risky this morning? Good morning, Chuck. So
4: I had promised to talk about a poorly done compensation analysis, but I've been asked a good question about the coronavirus, and that's clearly far more time-sensitive. So technology offers an option to do considerable diagnosis from a patient's home. And as the novel uh, uh, coronavirus outbreak worsens, Keeping patients out of the emergency room benefits patients, the facility, and society. After all, patients with an infectious disease in the emergency department are at risk of spreading an illness, while those who are waiting in the waiting room are at risk for catching it. So can a healthcare organization say, during this crisis, we'll offer free telehealth diagnostic screening to help you determine whether you need to be seen for your respiratory disease? Spoiler alert, while the legal analysis is a bit fuzzy, I wouldn't focus on the legal arguments. Do it because it's the right thing. Now, here's the analysis. There are at least three laws we would need to consider. Some states will have an applicable law, but most of those laws will generally follow the federal provisions, and realistically, we can't cover 50 options. So let's talk about the federal statutes. We've got the anti-kickback statute and the civil monetary penalty, often called the CMP statute. The two are similar, But the Civil Monetary Penalty Statute, as its name might suggest, only includes monetary damages, and it's broader than its criminal cousin, the Anti Kickback Statute. So the Civil Monetary Penalty Statute finds an individual that offers remuneration, or something of value, they know or should know is likely to influence a recipient to order services from a particular provider. So the key words are should know, influence, and particular provider. So will this program likely influence patients to choose a particular provider? The best arguments that it won't are that the advice from the program will often be stay home. And there's no reason to think that one free telehealth visit will convert people into lifelong patients of a particular facility. But I have to acknowledge someone could disagree. Now, the Affordable Care Act added some exceptions to the civil monetary penalty statute. One of them is any remuneration which promotes access to care, imposes a low risk of harm to patients in a federal health care program, and that's designated by the secretary under regulations. But unfortunately, I don't think there's a regulation yet that would save it. There's also an exception that applies to certain free services, but only if the items aren't offered as part of any advertisement or solicitation, and for this program to work, obviously it needs to be advertised. The bottom line is I don't think the proposal fits squarely with any of the CMP exceptions, and we'd have to rely on the argument that it isn't likely to influence patients to choose you. Now, the anti-kickback statute makes it a felony to offer remuneration to induce a person to make referrals or to purchase a service. Because the law is intent-based, I think there's a strong argument that this program would be consistent with the anti-kickback statute. The intent here is safety. So to understand the difference between the laws, a big difference between the CMP provision and the anti-kickback statute is that the CMP focuses on the patient's mindset, while the anti-kickback statute focuses on your intent. That means this program is riskier under the CMP provision than the kickback statute. But my advice here is really more practical than legal. At the moment, it's clearly the right thing to do this. I think most regulators would agree that the program is a good idea. And so we're in a situation where I can't say there's no risk, but I would recommend doing it while the disease remains a significant threat. After all, driving to work entails risk. Eating dinner entails risk. This is a risk that seems worth taking. Now, I doubt that ABBA had this program in mind when they sang, Take a Chance on Me.
1: But Chuck, if you need me, let me know. I'm gonna be around. Back to you. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm at Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Here now with the Monitor Monday Auto Report is Sean Weiss. Good morning, Sean. Good
5: morning. Thank you, Chuck, and
1: good Monitor Monday to all. Time and
5: again, clients contact me with concerns about how best to handle overpayment issues. Many times, the first thing I hear is, do I have to file an OIG self-disclosure because I Googled overpayment refunds, and that is what the article said. First and foremost, be careful of the information you choose to follow on the old interwebs, as oftentimes, there are issues with what has been put out there. OIG self-disclosure should always be the option of last resort, unless there is reason to believe a violation of criminal law has taken place. There are other more reasonable and efficient ways to handle a voluntary refund of an identified and confirmed overpayment. Listen, judges, for the most part, despise hearing healthcare cases. A perfect example is Judge Irvin of the Fourth Circuit Court from 1994, <clears throat> in which he stated in Rehab Association of Virginia – Inc. v. Kozlowski, there can be no doubt but that the statutes and provisions in question involving the financing of Medicare and Medicaid are among the most completely impenetrable texts within human experience. Indeed, one approaches them at the level of specificity herein demanded with dread, for not only are they dense reading of the most tortious kind, but Congress also revisits the area frequently Generously cutting and pruning in the process and making any saw grasp of the matters addressed merely a passing phase. So, a couple of things before I get into the differences of the available mechanisms. Make sure to investigate all credible information by using speed to engage in the review, reasonable diligence to identify overpayments, and ensure to keep the time frame to a total of eight months which is six months to conduct the investigation, and then 60 days from the date of confirmation to issue the refund. Second, if you know there is a problem and you fail to address it via one of the available refund mechanisms, then the government can take the position of, quote, the failure to repay creates a reverse false claims act. And could result in the government using statistical sampling and extrapolation or other methodologies based on a look back period of generally six years from the date of overpayment identification. First, consider using the corrected claims process if you have not exceeded the filing timeframe. Consider using the voluntary refund process with CMS or commercial payers. Make sure to work with counsel to draft an appropriate letter outlining the reason for the refund, the process undertaken to confirm the accuracy of the review, and an analysis and include the corrective action steps you've taken to ensure the same or other mistakes are not made in the future. I have had refunds to max greater than 350000 from some clients. Keep in mind that typically anything beyond $25,000 does tend to result in a referral to the Office of Inspector General, but oftentimes they won't pick up the case if the counsel is involved and the extrapolation and the amount of the refunds appear to be reasonable. So I will leave you with a couple of things here today. First, the OIG self-disclosure protocol. Keep in mind, this is used for actual or potential violations of any federal, civil, or administrative law for which CMPs are authorized. For all providers and suppliers subject to the CMPs is what the OIG self-disclosure protocol is used for. Third, it's used to conduct behavior that implicates stark and the anti-kickback statutes. It must be accepted by the Office of Inspector General for self-disclosure credit. Next, it tolls the 60-day repayment obligation. There are minimum mandatory settlement amounts and the presumption of somewhere between 1.5 to 2.5 in damages and up to triple damages it is expected. Typically, you can avoid a CIA or what is referred to as a corporate integrity agreement. And finally, adjudication is usually within one year. On Thursday this week, I will be providing a full detailed article complete with all of my do's and don'ts as it relates to the OIG self-disclosure versus other available mechanisms. The thing to keep in mind here is to be smart, be thorough, but most importantly, be honest with the process. Thanks, Chuck, and back to you.
1: Thank you, Sean. That was Sean White. Sean is a partner and a chief compliance officer for Doctors Management. Now's the time for the legislative update with Matthew Albright. The Monitor Monday legislative update with Matthew Albright is sponsored by
0: Cellus. Salus is a market-leading provider of claims, cost, and payment optimization solutions to price, pay, and explain healthcare claims.
1: Here now is Matthew
0: Albright.
6: Thanks, Chuck. From a high level in the past week, we're seeing three main categories of legislative reaction to the coronavirus. First, there's government activity targeted at the clinical side, right? That's the testing, treatment, and generally attacking the virus itself. Second, There's legislation that addresses downstream consequences, and in this group, we can include the question of how and who is going to pay for the testing and treatment. Third is a category which has already been given a friendly government euphemism, and that is social distancing. This type of legislation would be government-imposed restrictions on the movement and meeting of people in order to slow the virus. Now, in the first category, last week, Congress broke some speed records introducing passing and the President's signing a coronavirus funding bill in less than three days. The bill funded 8.3 billion. That's quite a jump from the one and a quarter billion in new funds that Trump had originally asked for. Now that funding package is directed towards vaccine development and additional supplies and state, local and even international activities aimed at stopping the spread of the virus. What was not funded, at least in this package, was the medical care that will be necessary to test and treat patients. So for example, hospitals did not see any money in this funding bill as requested by the AMA and AHA last week. As for the second category, government activity addressing downstream consequences of the virus, we have to go to the state level, specifically Washington State, that appears to be the most affected by the virus at this point. Compared to the federal legislation, Washington and other states' actions have concentrated on how and who is going to pay for testing and treatment of the virus. So this past week, Washington State passed a $100 million funding package, again in record time, and that funding package provides for free testing for patients that do not have health insurance. And for those that do have insurance, the Washington State Insurance Commissioner put out an order to insurers that patients will not have to pay out of pocket for any testing of the virus. Similar orders have been put in place in California and New York, and AHIP on Friday fell in line announcing its own emergency plan where most of the national carriers will waive out-of-pocket costs for testing across the country to the third category of legislation this social distancing now this is what the italian government did just yesterday to a third of its population right restricting the movement and meeting of people to keep the virus from spreading now we have not seen laws restricting people's behaviors in this country yet but political leaders in washington state are clearly contemplating it the state's governor recommended that meetings of more than 10 people be postponed or conducted virtually But as of yet, the state government has not put forward any mandatory requirements. Chuck, there have been times in recent history after a dramatic event, we have seen rapid changes in the way we go about our day, some of which have been pushed forward by government legislation. So as an example, as a result of 9-11, state and federal legislation helped by technological advancement, pushed society away from paper checks to electronic payments, ushering in an era of virtual money and and a generation that doesn't know what a wallet is. It's early yet, but in response to the coronavirus, we're already seeing cultural shifts in how people meet and interact. Last week, there was no handshaking going on on Capitol Hill. And listen to this, Chuck, staffers weren't even accepting business cards. What will be interesting is how legislation may change the way we deliver healthcare. As an example, and David spoke to this earlier in the broadcast, long before coronavirus, there was already interest in telehealth. But current state bills being considered, CMS's announcement on Friday about virtual check ins under Medicare, and AHIP's emergency plan is all pushing telehealth forward with obvious urgency. So it will be interesting to see how government actions taken today in response to the coronavirus will shape our medical care tomorrow.
1: Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Matthew. That was former CMS official Matthew Albright. Matthew is a Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous. Fame whistleblower attorney Mary Inman is standing by and let Report our lead story in just 60 seconds. This is Monitor Monday. Stand by.
0: Imagine the convenience of having access to one of the nation's most respected sources of interventional and diagnostic radiology services. Imagine no more registering for each resource, e-books, coding charts, e-newsletters, blogs, plus live and on-demand webcasts. No hassles, no searches. Now you can have access with an all-access pass from MedLearn Publishing. MedLearn is America's most trusted leader in coding, billing, and compliance for interventional and diagnostic radiology services. Tap into this expertise with an all-access pass, now available with one low annual investment. The all-access pass opens a new window of convenience, giving you complete access to the MedLearn portfolio of interventional and diagnostic radiology resources. Subscribe today for your all-access pass. Get top-rated radiology, interventional radiology coding, and compliance education. Now available online at shop.medlearn.com.
1: Another giant pharmaceutical is engaged in corporate wrongdoing. Calling in live from London is famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. And good morning, Mary.
7: Good morning, Chuck. I'm happy to supply some non-coronavirus related news this morning. As regular listeners of Monitor Monday know, we have previously reported on pharmaceutical companies paying hundreds of millions of dollars to settle allegations that they violated the False Claims Act by paying kickbacks to Medicare patients in the form of copay waivers for high-priced drugs. We now bring you the latest update from last week in which Sanofi, Another pharmaceutical company has agreed to pay $11.85 million to settle similar charges. The Sanofi settlement continues a recent enforcement trend. In the past three years, Boston based prosecutors have settled six similar actions against nine different drug companies. All of these suits involve copay waivers, and the total amount recovered by the government is an eye popping $852 million. This copay fraud stems from particularities of Medicare where, often, beneficiaries are required to pay a fee when they pick up medications that were prescribed for them. These fees are generally paid in the form of a copayment or a deductible, and they are legally mandated. Drug makers reimbursing patients for these costs may run afoul of the anti-kickback statute. The allegations against all nine companies involve a similar scheme in which the companies disguised kickbacks to patients as charitable donations from purportedly independent foundations. In fact, these foundations were allegedly controlled by the drug companies and were set up with the goal to increase the sale of certain high-cost drugs that the companies manufacture. Broadly speaking... The anti-kickback statute prohibits healthcare providers, including pharmaceutical companies, from paying or receiving kickbacks, remuneration, or anything of a value to induce patients to purchase or use the company's drugs. The law seeks to prevent physicians prescribing medically unnecessary medications or recommending unneeded tests. The anti-kickback statute is also intended to ensure that a physician's medical judgment is not compromised by financial incentives and is solely based on the best interest of the patient. Research has shown that pharmaceutical patient assistant programs can lead to higher drug prices, including by steering patients away from generic drugs and other less costly alternatives, and federal regulations impose limits on such programs. Generally, the more expensive a drug is, the higher the out-of-pocket cost for the patient. The hope behind the policy is that market forces will drive patients toward cheaper alternatives and lower drug prices overall. Drug makers are not allowed to directly cover prescription co-payments for Medicare or Medicaid beneficiaries, although they are welcome to donate to bona fide independent charities. Last week's $11.85 million settlement addressed Sanofi's marketing of Lemtrada, a drug used to treat multiple sclerosis. Lemtrada costs nearly $100,000 per patient per year and often is attached to a multi-thousand dollars copay. Sanofi allegedly donated millions to a foundation cleverly named the Assistance Foundation that funded co-payments for patients, including Medicare beneficia- beneficiaries, of various MS drugs. The foundation raised its maximum per patient allocation specifically to accommodate Lymtrata. The foundation often ran out of funding and was not able to make to take on new patients at various times. Sanofi allegedly worked with a third-party company to identify patients who were prescribed the drug but had not received infusions, possibly due to a lack of funds. Sanofi then made nine payments to the foundation in 2015 and 2016. Eight of the payments were made when the foundation had no funds. Sanofi allegedly encouraged referrals of Lemtrada patients to the foundation immediately after its contributions with a goal of directing a disproportionate amount of the money to these patients. This whistleblower suit was brought by a Delaware Limited Liability Partnership, Formed by a former employee of Sanofi's predecessor, Genzyme Corporation, the whistleblower company will receive a $2.7 million reward for its role in bringing this successful lawsuit. That's it for me. Back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks very, very much. That was famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. Mary is a partner in the London office of Constantine Cannon. And that's going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Monday. We thank you very much for being with us today. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Matthew Albright, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Sean Weiss, and Mary Inman calling in live from London to report our lead story. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Have a great week, everyone. Monitor Monday
0: is a presentation of Rack Monitor.